Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? In which they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past. I'm Sarah Ischdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by another medieval historian, Dana Wessel Lightfoot, to talk about The Lions of Al-Rasan by Guy Gabriel Kay. So hello, welcome, Dana. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I'm a, um, as as you said, I'm a professor of medieval history, and I teach at the University of Northern British Columbia in Prince George, Canada. And like you, I'm also, my area of expertise is in medieval Spain. This type of, of reason of that I'm really interested in studying is thinking about the experiences of those that most perceive as powerless in medieval Spanish Mm -hmm. history. And my goal as a scholar is to really challenge that narrative to show that such people did have agency over their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So my current work is with Alexander Garrison. It's a collaborative project on Jewish women and converses in the late medieval, um, late 14th and early 15th centuries. Um, So I'm really excited to talk about this book. Yes. So uh, why did you especially want to talk about this book? So I first read this book when it came out in the mid-1990s, in 1995, um, when I was just finishing my undergraduate uh, degree at the University of Toronto. And that was right at the end of my undergraduate degree that I was introduced to medieval Spain. So it really wasn't until late on. And Guy Gabriel Kay is a Canadian author. Um, Mm -hmm. He's written a lot of books in the realm of historical fantasy. And I think it's really important to to bring attention to his work because he writes really interesting stories. Plus, there aren't very many historical fantasy or historical historical fiction books that are focused on medieval Spain. Uh, right. So it's another thing. And also, I think it's good to bring some Canadian content to your uh, to your podcast. Yes. So I'm excited about that, too. Yeah, definitely. Glad to have some Canadian content and yeah. glad to have uh, more Iberian content than yes. we usually have. Uh, you know, as a scholar of the medieval Iberian Peninsula as well, I'm often a little disappointed that I have to spend so much time talking about England on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> what is it? With, what is it with, with people representing medieval history and England? Right? It's always about England. It's like there's nowhere else, and maybe France, occasionally France. Right. It's like, you know, England isn't the most interesting place in the Middle Ages, right? Like, you you could do better. Yeah, there's much more fascinating stories to be told. Yeah, and I think this is a very good example of that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and as you said, uh, Guy Gabriel Kay has this really interesting uh, history as a fantasy author of writing these essentially historically inspired fantasy. So this is the first time I'd read this was for the podcast, but I'd previously read his Sailing to Sarantium. Uh, he has a pair of books, uh, which is uh, inspired by the Byzantine Empire, uh, focuses on Justinian and Theodora. Maybe one day mm-hmm. I'll be in the mood to do that for the podcast. Yeah. By do or reread. But yeah, so he has this really kind of interesting focus in some ways that's different from a lot of fantasy authors. Yeah. And his most recent book is set in a sort of flipped medieval, uh, late medieval Italy and looks at the mm-hmm. Italian wars, um, which is also really, really fascinating. And then I should, I should bring um, some attention to a trilogy that he did called the Fionovar Tapestry, yes, um, which is sort of a, a moving through time, right? A time mm-hmm. travel kind of a series of books, which is, which are also really, really wonderful too. I read those years ago. And if I'm remembering correctly, the heroes are actually grad students. 
Yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Grad students never get to be the heroes. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, and, it's, <laughs> and again, also wonder, uh, a series of wonderful stories. I noticed I saw them on my bookshelf the other day and I thought, I haven't read those for, it's probably been about 15 years. So I think I might, I might go back and reread them because they're also really great again. And I think he mm-hmm. has this, he has this really great way of bringing attention to stories that are often not told in the broader public, yeah. right. Of different types of people of, of looking at different parts of history in a new way and and none mm-hmm. of his books focus on England at all so <laughs> yes it's great <laughs> with that let's uh, get into the plot in the first section which I call the enumeratio so I'm going to give just a very brief recap of essentially the premise to orient us and then we can get into some of the details Sure. The Alliance of Al-Rasan takes place in Al-Rasan, a fractured kingdom inspired by medieval Al-Andalus. It follows the intertwined narratives of three central figures of three different faiths, the Kindoth physician Jahan, uh, analogous uh, to the Jews, the Jadite or Christian-ish military commander Rodrigo Belmonte, and the Asharite or Muslim poet, diplomat, and soldier Amar ibn Qaidan, as they navigate the fall of Al-Rasan and their relationship with one another and with the assorted kings vying for control of the peninsula of Esperania. Yeah, so that's essentially where we start off. Yeah. We've got a lot of backstory, I would say, that we begin with, yeah, in terms of our kind of political intrigue, in terms of our uh, kind of interreligious conflict, uh, that some of this is things that will be familiar to those who are familiar with the actual history of the Iberian Peninsula in terms of that it used to be fully under Jadite control. It was then conquered by the Asherites, and now there are these kind of little Jadite kingdoms in the north. Yeah, and and, and, Mo, and the Jedi kingdoms kind of seem to fight with each other as much as yes. they seem to have conflict with um, the Asherites in, in the South. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is kind of set up for us at the beginning. Um, and also the backstory of like how they ended up with Elrissan splintered into mm-hmm. these, uh, into the, the prologue features a uh, an assassination of the of the ruler of the united Elrissan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what creates these splintered kingdoms is the death of this particular ruler. And of course, one of our main characters is introduced to us right at the at the prologue as the agent of that. Uh, and yes. So the whole beginning of the book is really setting up where these three characters come from, right? The context yeah. for each of them and then bringing them all together with particular moments mm-hmm. is, is kind of the goal. Yeah, that's we have. Yes, we have Amar, who is the the assassin of the last caliph. We also then have an interesting connection in that the the person for whom he essentially did this for uh, Al Malik of Kartava, he is essentially responsible for a major crisis in Jahan's life. In that we learn that his uh, concubine was having a difficult childbirth, ended up having to have a C section, which was performed by Jahan's father Ishak. And that because he had therefore then laid eyes on the naked body of an Asherite woman, he was blinded and his tongue cut out. Yes. And then as a result of that, his daughter Jahan then steps into his medical practice and becomes sort of the supporter of their family in some ways, although it it, it sounds like her father was kind of financially um, compensated Mm -hmm. for his actions in in um, preventing the death of the mother and child in, yes. in that way as well and so that's sort of where we see her begin right is in the market in Fizana yeah. and 
she's really fascinating. I, I love Jahan as, as a character yeah. in, so, in so many ways, but um, it's through her connection to a particular client or a patient that she has that she's first inter- introduced to MR um, mm-hmm. and uh, prevents that particular client from being massacred. <laughs> Once again, yes. you know, MR is in the middle of all of this intrigue mm-hmm. that's happening too. It's fu- it's really interesting because he always seems to be in that in the middle of that those particular types of intrigue, right? Yeah, and then he's able to extricate himself in various in various ways. Um, so we start. Of, and then, in, you know, once again, there's assassinations that are happening. But in this case, he's not the one carrying them out. Um, he's right. sort of a pawn in the hands of this of this ruler who he helped get to the throne. Right. And that it seems like part of it is that essentially that Al-Malik, the ruler, is concerned about his level of power and wants to undermine him and wants to essentially both accomplish this purge of the city leadership of Faizana, but also basically have it be blamed on Amar. Yes. Yeah. Because again, I guess he's concerned with himself, uh, with Amar having too much power because of this, yeah. his connection to the fact that that's how, how Amalik came to power himself. Um, so it's yeah. a, kind of a, a way of dressing him down, I guess, in some ways. Right. And yeah, and it's because of essentially the coincidence that this uh, one man, a merchant, uh, Husari bin Musa, <laughs> that he had, what was it, kidney stones? Yes, kidney stones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That he happened to have kidney stones that day and Jahan was brought to treat him. And because he was being treated for kidney stones, that's why he was not included in this massacre. Yes. Yeah. And Hisari, of course, then Hisari goes on to become a kind of an important um, side character, right? His own story yeah. is really fascinating because he's he's a Muslim, and then he some then he goes with Jahan and gets caught up in the Jadite um, army, mm-hmm. um, and then becomes a follower of one of the Jadites himself. Yeah. So, so his story is also kind of in the background too, that alongside these three main characters. Yeah, and I really do appreciate how practical and how active Jahan is. That, mm-hmm. you know, she makes the decision relatively quickly, uh, both that she's going to leave, but also that she's not going to leave without also uh, helping Husari to leave with her. Yes. Yeah. To make sure that he gets out as well. Yeah. Right? And she's also the concerned about her, her family and making sure that her mm-hmm. parents are, are protected, but also but aware that that for them to travel is, is a very different thing, right? That they're older yeah. and her, her father being blind, that, that for him, yeah. it's, it's a much more challenging thing. And so off she goes um, yeah. with, uh, <laughs> with Husari and then, um, of course, runs into uh, Rodrigo. <laughs> Yes, Lawrence, yes, straight into Rodrigo Belmonte, who yeah. has been exiled. Uh, this will, as we'll talk about later, might sound yeah. familiar to uh, those of you uh, familiar with El Cid and uh, to some respect, uh, but that, yes, he was exiled uh, for, what was it, some kind of conflict uh, between him and the uh, the king's constable. One of the other, yes, yeah. the king's constable. yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of the Dorada family who seem who seem to yes. dislike him greatly and it and yes. continually attempts to uh to do things to his family. Yes, that that really seems to be their yeah. main just hobby, I guess. Yeah, apparently the, the only thing that the constable for uh for this particular king has to do is to bother the bother the Belmonte family in different ways. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so because of this, he has left his uh, the kingdom that he is based in, Vallejo, and uh, is now uh, kind of runs into Jahan at this point. Yeah, 
what ends up happening is that they end up then all three of them ultimately being based in another city of, oh no, I've forgotten what the name of the city is and I have to, uh, Ragosa. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I guess, supposed to be Zaragoza. Yes. I think it's based on Zaragoza. Yeah. Yeah. Although there are kind of moments here and there where it almost sort of seemed like some of the descriptions, I was kind of wondering if there's like a little bit of Valencia sneaking in there, but I think it's mostly supposed to be Zaragoza. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so here they, they end up, all three of them end up um, working together as um, a mercenary army for the king of Ragosa, who also happens to have a kindith advisor, Mazur Ben Avrin, who's also a really interesting character. I'm pretty sure based on Samuel Ibn Negrila. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, there they have Jahan is is not only a member of this um, mercenary army, the doctor for the army, but she also has a position at court um, with Mazur, mm-hmm. working as a as a physician there as well, and is yeah. is really um, becomes important in terms of protecting the concubine of the mm-hmm. uh, of the Asherite of another Asherite king who comes to court, comes to Ragosa asking for protection because her sons are located there as well. Yeah, and because so what ends up happening with the Asherites is so that Al-Malik I, who is the one for whom essentially Amar had assassinated the Caliph, he then, you know, in part because of this purge, Amar then joins forces with Al-Malik's son, Al-Malik II, which I I appreciate the realism of that. It's going to make this more inconvenient to discuss, but I do appreciate uh, always when they acknowledge the fact that, yeah, I mean, everybody has the same name in the Middle Ages. Uh, but uh, yes, yeah, so it's that. So he then, the two of them then conspire to assassinate the father. The father. And Al Malik II is now king, and his first act as king is to exile Amar. Yeah, and Amar also realizes the fact that Al Malik I's concubine, Zahira, is in danger, as are her sons who could challenge uh, Al Malik II for the throne. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he in, he helps to ensure that she can escape. And so she also goes to Ragosa um, and is an important player in that court as well. Um, she mm-hmm. she uh, ends up having a relationship with Mazur Ben Avrin as well. Yes. Um, but also she's shown as a very politically astute woman, right? Aware mm-hmm. of the fact that she does have this power, that there are people who want to see her children, her two sons killed. And so that she's going to use what she has available to her in order to protect them. Um, and she's also much like Jahan, um, but in a very different way, a very active woman, right? A woman who has yeah. power and influence and knows how to use it, right? Knows mm-hmm. knows how to do that. And so she she's very involved in kind of what's going on at that court and making yeah. sure that her children, children are okay. Yeah. And I will note as well that I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the book is in a lot of ways very, I mean, it's not explicit or anything, yeah. but it's very kind of casually sex positive, Yes, at least in the sense that, you know, the women are both presented as uh, being sexually active, both in relationships that are clearly meaningful and romantic, but also more casually. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that's and- not something that's ever, you know, that they're ever denigrated for. Yes. And, and, and there's, there's also an emphasis on the fact that sexual assault against women is mm-hmm. wrong, right? A lot you see mm-hmm. male characters who, who um, condemn that type of action by armies mm-hmm. and, and who actually work to prevent it from happening. 
but also you have these these um you know characters who are female who clearly take the lead in in sexual relationships yeah. too um yeah. there's a the, you know the wonderful uh storyline between uh, Alvar and yes. the, the cat in Carnival right where this woman this woman clearly sees what she wants and she uh just goes for it goes for it right and and i i really like that fact about this 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 book as well that women yeah. are not presented as simply these victims in terms of sexual assault as we often see with so many um, things yeah. said in the medieval period you know that women have choice and and mm-hmm. consent is important but also that men will defend um mm-hmm. women in that right that they they aren't simply complicit uh, in in these in this in sexual violence too, which I think is important. Yeah, it's uh, you know the the one thing I will say is of course to some extent it is the trope that it's you know the bad guys are the ones who yes. uh, are very yes, casual about sexual yeah. assault being acceptable, yeah. and then the good guys are the ones who know never and we of course yeah. have to vociferously yes. defend against that. Yes, which yeah, yeah. You know, not not saying it should be the other way around, of course. Yeah, but, uh, it is. But doesn't necessarily reflect extent. yeah reflect reality for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say the other thing I appreciated is that you you have men defending against this, but also that there are some instances where we see women able to defend themselves. I mean, I really yes. loved the scene where the uh, the constable's brother goes to essentially attempt to probably rape and murder Rodrigo's wife Miranda Belmonte and you know kill their children. That seems to be his his goal yes. there, and she's actually the one who is actually the one who kills him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again. So, and I mean, showing, showing that this, that, that these women are not shrinking violets, right. And that yeah. they have lots of different tools at their disposal to defend themselves mm-hmm. and their families. Yeah. So it's, uh, they're, it's really, they're really interesting figures. And the other thing I will say is that I think the characters are for the most part, really interesting in that and there's a lot of people. It's a big cast mm-hmm. of characters. Yes. There are people who are often on uh, not the same side of various conflicts, yeah. but there are relatively few people who are just evil or uncomplicatedly yes. villainous. Yeah. And and the 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 characters in general, I think, are really fully developed in terms of yeah. thinking thinking about them as fallible, right? They're all mm-hmm. that's one of the things I love about Kay's work is that all of his characters are always fallible. Right? Yeah, They're, they all they all are human. And so you feel you feel some connection with them because you can kind of see yeah. that they're just like they're just like normal people. Right. They're not they're these great heroes who who have no um, faults that they all all of them, yeah. regardless of who they are. And I mean, there's clearly evil, bad characters and good characters. Right. I think that's yeah. sort of what ends up happening regardless. But then all of them have some really interesting qualities within them that help us think about them as real yeah that they're all very realistic i would say even even a number of the kings while you certainly don't i would say like them per se you have a sense of the concerns that are motivating them and the fact that it is a complex web of concerns and that they're and that even when they do things that that are bad that are awful they almost never seem just completely just like irredeemable horrific people Yes. Yeah. And that they understand that there's, that there's consequences for their actions. Right. I mean, when Mm. Amalik um, the second kills his father and then Mm. banishes Amar, 
know, he realizes fairly soon that that was kind of stupid. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And that there's, and that there's consequences for him having done that his, in, his, in terms of his own ability to rule and to, and to, um, and to exert his influence and power. Right. He, he realizes mm-hmm. very quickly, well, maybe I was actually better off <laughs> with yeah. having him, with having him at my side rather than, than yeah. as, as someone against me. Right. Or, or yeah. fighting for other people. And even Amar, I mean, he's, uh, he's obviously, he's one of our central figures. He will become a love interest for Jahan as well, but he's, he's introduced to us as a murderer. Yes. Yes. Uh, It's not entirely clear for a little while, whether or not he was deliberately involved in some capacity in the Fizana massacres. Yeah. I mean, it takes a while for us to kind of figure all of that out. And he, He's an interesting character because on the one hand, he's this kind of poet and diplomat, right? So he's very good with words Mm -hmm. and with um, thinking intellectually in that way. Obviously very cultured, very well educated, but he's also very dangerous, and and people are afraid of him, right? I mean, you get that, yeah. you get that sense yeah. that people are are afraid of him and respect him, respect mm-hmm. his ability in that way. And but and that part never both those things are seen as being able to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, both those halves are seen as being able to work together in, in as a character. He's also, you know, at a point you don't really like him. Like there's some of the things yeah. that he does that I'm like, no, like I I don't the fact that you did that, but, but that's okay. Right. And, and I, yeah. I, I mean, I like that Kay is, is um, confident enough as an author to say that that's okay. Right. You, you're not going to, yeah. like, we don't, we don't like every, as, as human beings, we don't like everybody all the time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to have his characters do things that you don't like is, is mm-hmm. okay for him. Yeah. And that you can ultimately still have characters who are sympathetic and in many ways likable who still make choices that you fundamentally disagree with yes yeah which I think is important you know when if you're going to read a book that's that what I think a good book right these are the type of qualities that it's going to have in it yeah and so that's definitely something else that I appreciated they're based in the city of Ragosa and it's a while our three main figures are based there that we essentially start on the path uh, which will and in, in this book, kind of very rapid progression of uh, what is analogous to the Christian conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. Yes, very quickly. <laughs> yes, and we'll, yeah. we'll talk about this later, but it must yeah, all take yeah. place basically within, what, 30 years? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so it's very, very quick. Rap- very rapid timeline, yeah. Yes, we learned, so there are uh, so there are these clerics from uh, Ferreras, which is France, I guess. Yeah, yeah. They are urging the Jadite kings of Esperania to join forces and fight against the Asherites, while at the same time uh, there has recently begun basically the, the Crusades, a Jadite holy war against the kingdom uh, of Amuz, uh, as it is referred to in Yes, in the, in the east, right? In the yeah. east, yes. Yeah. So. yeah, 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 yeah. And then also within, within the Jadite kingdoms as well, there's this undercurrent of increasing intolerance and mm-hmm. um, critique of the Kindith, uh, people of the Kindith faith as well. So there's a certain element within, within their leadership too, which are promoting attacks against them or removing them from, from their kingdoms as well. And so that kind of anxiety mm-hmm. underplays all of this too. Yeah. And there's, I think there's some really interesting ways that gets dealt with. One of the things I found really striking is so that there's some Jadite queen, uh, you know, long deceased at this point, uh, whose name I do not remember, but that she is somebody who is venerated as a saint. And, uh, you know, we even have uh, Alvaro de Polino talking about the fact that, you know, his, uh, you know, his mother went on pilgrimage to uh, 
to her shrine. Yeah. And uh, then we also have Jahan talking about, you know, what she thought about the Kindath and her, you know, intense hostility. And I, I really liked how that was dealt with because I think especially it is, it's something that I often find very frustrating mm-hmm. in some ways. I mean, when talking to people who are not necessarily as familiar with Jewish history about the medieval past, yeah. that there's figures who are often uh, kind of idealized and uh, even even almost venerated uh, without acknowledging that very kind of ugly part of their past and history as well. Yes, yeah, and that and the, and the fact too that Alvar was was kind of unaware of that, right? Like I, yeah, that and and Jahan introduced and it made him rethink that, right? Mm-hmm. And also made him rethink about his mother's belief in this. And and I thought yeah. that was I thought that was a really it was a really interesting moment too. And again, I, I I think you know that 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 having this queen that's venerated but also has this particular side of her that you know promotes intolerance and violence against this mm-hmm. minority faith. I think it's reflect again, it's reflective of of the reality of humanity, mm-hmm. right? That that yeah. you can have these people that are venerated, but who also do really awful things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to, it's important to understand both halves of those people. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so obviously a figure who's, you know, much later than this particular queen is meant to have been, but it's in some ways to me kind of interestingly parallel some of the ways you see people talking about Isabella of Castile. Yes. Who, you know, of course is, you know, a central figure responsible ultimately for the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, but who, you know, you often get this kind of like girl boss, uh, powerful queen narrative surrounding her. Yeah, yeah, and she and she's venerated as kind of the you know the one that supported Columbus and his in his mm-hmm. uh, voyages and the leader. Which of course, problematic the, for other reasons. Yes, but. for other reasons, right? <laughs> yeah, but also, but, but, but venerated for by some mm-hmm. by certain groups people for that, and also her involvement in the conquest of Granada as well. Yeah, you know, she's yeah. seen particularly in modern Spanish just bonus modern Spanish society today. She's really venerated, but. You know, there's this yeah. other side of her that's really and and much like this the same the same queen who's you know I also can't remember but uh, but yeah this the same thing right and so I think you see those undercurrents of of um, uh, within the these these uh, Jadite courts but also within the Asherite court too right and I yeah. think I think that's one of the things that I like too is that K has shows that intolerance is not specific to a particular faith yes. Yeah, and it's uh, and I thought it was really interesting the way that it actually even kind of very overtly acknowledged the fact that we have uh, Al Malik II talk about essentially, well, I'm kind of stirring up some some kind of discontent and anger toward the Kindath, and Amar is like, why are you? What are you doing that for? And he basically says, eh, make me popular, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That this is a political move, right? That yeah. it's not. Yeah. That, that his choice to do this is not out of in, out of religious intolerance. Mm-hmm. but out of a desire to, out of other desires right out of other, other yeah. uh, for other reasons and I think that's yeah. important too to to highlight the fact that this type of interfaith violence isn't always motivated by religion mm-hmm. right yeah and there that are other motivations yeah and that there's a real there's a real pragmatism and a pragmatism that cuts both ways right I mean on the one hand we hear these kings uh the uh, the Jedi kings talking about well, I mean, we're going to be tolerant of the Asharites and maybe even the Kindath because yeah. we need people to continue to, you know, stay and work the fields. Yeah. 
And uh, so, you know, so as I said, there's this pragmatism that sometimes can uh, result in uh, toleration seeming like the right yeah. thing to do, and that can be beneficial. And sometimes that same instinct toward pragmatism is something that ultimately will lead uh, toward real violence. To real violence, yeah, as we, yeah. as, as what happens in Ragosa eventually. Yeah, and so we, yeah, so we see that there's, uh, we actually do have, we have massacres that, that take place uh, against the Kindath perpetrated by people of both faiths. More distantly, we hear that the crusading Jadites en route to Amuz uh, have stopped in Serenica, which is a Jewish city in essentially Italy. Yeah. And massacred the Kindath there and at close to the same time in Fizana that uh, there is a uh, massacre in the Jewish quarter there. As well. Yeah. And that these are seen as connected together, too, I think. Yeah. Done by different groups, but can, there's mm-hmm. a connection to them. Um, and at the same time, of course, we have these this group of Asherites from the desert, from the Mahriti mm-hmm. desert, um, the Murwadis, Mur- who are are already present in Al-Rasan as working as um, mercenary soldiers. They're the right. ones that, uh, that carry out this, uh, this uh, massacre, political massacre, I guess, in Fazana. But then they then also arrive in greater numbers. At, so there's a whole storyline with the, the main characters um, from the leaders of this particular group as well, debating you know, yeah. whether or not they're going to evade Al-Rasan and how they view. Um, so very, very much clearly, you know, designed to reflect the Almoravids and the Almohads. Yeah. Blend it all together. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's, they have connections at court themselves, right, as well. Yeah. And so yeah. they're another, that's another storyline of another political group that's kind of on the outside mm-hmm. that's going to come in and, and also influence the story that gets to be told. Right. Yeah. And really emphasizing the kind of multifaceted nature of, uh, of how things are, of how things are changing and the groups that are involved in that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's an, it's, it's one of the things I like about this book is that, you know, medieval Spanish history is really complicated, and I think some of the yeah. reasons, one of the one of the reasons why some people don't teach it in their in their classes and don't don't read about it is because it's so it is complicated. Mm-hmm. But Kay does a really good job of showing it can be complicated, but you can craft a narrative out of it. Absolutely, that it all works together. Right. That you can yeah. that you can see those complexities and all of these difficult things that are going on and and think about them. But you can write a story about this. Right. That is that has mm-hmm. a strong storyline and that has a narrative you can hang on to and that has characters that you can associate with despite its complexity, which I which I you know, I think it's really it's important for us to think about as readers, just as readers mm-hmm. of fiction. Yeah. And there's, and there is, of course, you know, as we'll talk about, as we get into the next section, uh, we'll talk about at some point, you know, the fact that there are, of course, are things that are oversimplified events that are condensed, but yeah, that, that, as you said, you can still create a coherent narrative that even while making those choices, I don't think, or I think remains aware of that complexity and includes that complexity still. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, so. yeah. And it certainly helps that he's somebody who's kind of good at writing that kind of political intrigue too. But. Yes. Yes. Very much so. And, 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 and despite the fact that there's all these characters, I should, should highlight too. It's actually fairly easy to keep track of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, unlike they have very distinct fit- personalities. There's something like, you know, in, in Game of Thrones, it's often hard to keep, there's so many characters. It's so hard, it's often hard to keep track of all of them, but here there's lots and lots of characters too, but you, because he's so good at crafting them as people, it's Mm -hmm. easy to keep track of them, I think. Yeah. And so I really appreciate that. And I will say I also appreciate that there are, 
within the three fates, there are uh, more and less sympathetic people, I would say, yes. in certainly among both the Asherites and the Jadites. Among the Kindoth, I would say there's, there's nobody sort of really villainous. And it's kind of in, yeah. in this interesting dynamic that, of course, you know, if both the Kindoth in this book and the Jews in reality, you know, tended not to be powerful enough, at least to be kind of yeah. carrying out these extreme acts of violence. Yes. But I think Mazur is an interesting figure in that he's ultimately a sympathetic figure but he is somebody who when you when we first meet him I definitely kind of was like I don't I don't know if this is a trustworthy person yes yeah yeah I mean when you first when you're first introduced to him it, it it he's presented as someone who clearly has is very involved in all these political interests and pulling these strings in the background yeah right? and you and yeah. some of the things he's done seem kind of questionable and and mm-hmm. And the way that the main character, Jahan, approaches him too is that way, right? She's, yeah. She's not quite sure how to deal with him and 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 uh, um, what what is expected of her. Yeah, Diane. And so yeah, I really did appreciate that as well, right? Is that mm-hmm. he's, he's, he too is, I think, you know, somebody who's, he's not an unambiguously positive figure, even if no. ultimately he is a sympathetic one. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we have this kind of very dramatic climax in which, so we have this massacre in Fezana and uh, Amar and Rodrigo and Jahan all have this kind of like breakneck pace ride to Fezana. I think actually, and uh, Alvar and Husari are there for that as well. Yes. Yeah. yes. They arrive essentially just in time to kind of barely manage to rescue her parents mm-hmm. and maybe a couple other people, but not everybody, of course. We have a great kind of side bit with the prostitutes of Fizana, who yes. Jahan has always been kind of friendly with and has treated them. Yes. And so they warn her parents or they warn her mother and they help them get out of the city. Yes. Yeah. The, and, and these, and, and this, these prostitutes, some of whom are very young, right? right? They talk, yeah. ha- have kind of this secret knowledge of how to get mm-hmm. in and out of the city. And so they, they, they help, they help Jahan and her family escape so that they can escape this, uh, the, the, the violence. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but also show, you know, a lot of, I, I found, I found that them very, they're very pragmatic, you know, sometimes we're in, yeah. inside the walls, sometimes we're outside of the walls and that's okay. We just kind of roll with the, and, and, you know, there's this massacre happening, but we know how to protect ourselves mm-hmm. and we're going to protect you and help you move, help you get, help you get away as well. Yeah. And speaking of the pragmatism, that they're also kind of very, they're very aware too of the pragmatism behind a lot of these decisions, right? That it's yes. a kind of every now and then as a way to placate certain moralizing forces, uh, the people in charge send them outside the walls and then maybe they'll decide later to bring them back inside the walls. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's a door, right? There's a door in the right. wall that right. their customers can come in and out of and that they mm-hmm. can come in and out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they're, I mean, they're good allies to have when this violence breaks out because they know the ways to get out of the city safely. And, uh, but also the fact that they're loyal, right? They're loyal to Jahan mm-hmm. who's helped them and who's treated them and in, in, with yeah. their various ailments that they've had. Um, so they yeah. help her family get away. Yeah. Just as they're managing to get out, so Rodrigo's has these has two has two children has two sons who are twins who have been kind of impressed into this war mm-hmm. that the Jadites are now making on uh, Al Rasan. One of them is a visionary. Yes. He, yeah, he can at least like he can he can see things that are happening to members of his family and uh, kind of help help find them at least. Yeah, yeah, and he, the knowledge of his the fact that he has this. The, these um, abilities, his family cleric 
um, mm-hmm. decides that this knowledge needs to be shared with the king. And so he writes mm-hmm. to this cleric from Ferreras, who's at the at the court in Vallejo, and tells him about this. Um, and so eventually he's kind of scooped up and brought into the army as a means of assisting them in their mm-hmm. in their in their war. Against and the, the mother wishes. kicks the yes she kicks the, she kicks him out which I kind of that Miranda yeah kicks him yeah. out which I really sort of appreciated that she's like yes. yeah we're, I'm I'm not on board with this yeah the, the fact that you like convinced my and, and the sons are kind of like no we need to go and you know I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting really the relationship with, between the two boys is really interesting because one mm-hmm. is very protective of the other one of the one who's the visionary. Um, but also they have this, they think of this as a big adventure, right? They're off on this big mm-hmm. adventure and they have they have this this kind of mission, I guess, behind mm-hmm. what they're the, very much what a young boy thinks of war, right? That they're they're gonna yeah. ride off. Yeah, they're 14 year old boys and their yeah. father is a military commander. Yeah. So yeah, they have this kind of very yeah. particular sense of what war yeah. is like and it seems fun to them. Yes. And so they they arrive and so they're outside the walls as well waiting with the army and then they all kind of meet there and then it becomes very clear that the the this this kind of alliance between Rodrigo and Amar and Jahan um that this is going to start to become problematic right that there's these Mm -hmm. outside forces that are invading to allow them to be uh, team themselves as a as a mercenary army that now mm-hmm. you know their own kingdoms their own faiths where they're from is going to is going to work to push the, to pull them apart right and to make them right. to cause them to become uh, to fight on 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 opposite sides and one of the things that i find fascinating is that we see that basically immediately after this moment which in some ways is this kind of moment of basically the best possible unity in some ways yeah. that it's because of a warning from amar that they're able to realize that this base is under attack and because of that they get there essentially just in time that diego who has been very severely injured jahan's father ishak is able to save his life yes yeah yeah, that he and again, again, this kind of mixing of these, the importance of these three faiths working together to save the life of this mm-hmm. boy at the same time that these outside forces are kind of playing into pulling them all apart, right? And create making yeah. and making this conflict worse. Yeah. And so yeah, so after all of this, Ramiro has uh, of course, you know, un- unexiles Rodrigo and yeah. now makes him constable and invites Amar to join them. And Amar feels that he cannot do that, uh, that he is instead going to go back and essentially is assuming that he's going to ultimately be fighting for the Muardis. Yes. Yeah. Uh, much to his chagrin, he doesn't really want to be. They're not really that. his type of people, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so he has to go back and kind of deal with the, what is, what, what's going to happen there with him. And Jahan has to make a decision, right. About what she's going to do too. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and she does go with him. Yeah. Uh, and we have then this, you know, it's, there's been hints throughout the book, of course, that it's going to end up in a climactic duel between Amar and Rodrigo, which happens. And uh, in a moment that was definitely like, well done, but also one of those just most like be like kind of screaming at a book moments. Uh, yeah. He like really holds off on expl- and telling you what happened in the duel and who won. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The duel happens, and then, and then you you don't. He doesn't tell you what how, who won at all. It's kind of it ends, and then he jumps forward in time, like a, quite a bit of time. Yes, 
My jumps forward in time. Now we're hanging out in Sorenica, which has been yeah. rebuilt. Alfar has converted to Judaism. Yes. Adorable. Yeah. And, and and even the beginning of that chapter too is is very much he doesn't because Alvar is converted and he talks about his wife, but Mm-hmm. they don't say who the wife is so is the wife Je- like you're like is the wife Jahan like who's who's he married you know and then all of a sudden especially because he's like oh my wife you know a physician like her father who also trained yes. me yes uh, yeah yeah so it's, and it's pages and pages and pages into the epilogue when you, when you finally meet the wife Maria you know who is not obviously not Jahan but who is the daughter of another famous physician from um Serenica. And then we, then we now then discover the elderly Amar who's working, yes. walking with a stick <laughs> with his, with his wife, um, Jahan. And it's, it is then that we learn that in fact, Amar had defeated Rodrigo in that battle. Right. But that, but that interestingly, they are, they're still in touch with his wife, Miranda, that she's, that yes. she's actually the one who writes them to tell them what has happened, which is that uh, the, the Jadites have won. They have definitively conquered the entirety of the peninsula yes and the head of that army is rodrigo's son right he's yes. the one that's uh yeah that's that's um affected that uh that that battle and then we kind of learn what happened right what what that the fact yeah. that um that amar was was the marwadis wanted to kill him and um eventually but amar was allowed to leave uh, with Jahan and moved to Serenica, mm-hmm. and which they, which is where they they're now living with with their family. Right, and that's kind of where we end up. Isn't yeah, it, at the end of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have uh, you know this this sort of happy ending for most of our central characters, except except Rodrigo, I suppose. Except Rodrigo, but uh, that you know this uh, kind of melancholy or bittersweet element as well, and that you know despite of course having its own flaws, there's very much this kind of sense presented in the work of Al Rasan as a place that was, in many ways, kind of really special and that can't fully exist probably again anywhere else in some ways, and that that yes. has been lost. Yes. Yeah. And this, and I mean, Amar is of course a, a poet as well. And so he presents this beautiful poem at the end of the, uh, end of the novel, yeah. which is really a lament for the loss of Al Rasan. Mm-hmm. But I think I, 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 th- I thought the having the letter from Miranda was kind of a nice touch, right. To show yeah. that despite the fact that Amar um, defeated Rodrigo, that this, again, that this particular duel was seen as, as something that was, motivated by outside forces and not yeah. something that she holds a grudge against him for. I mean, it's mm-hmm. hard to know about the sun. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, so you, uh, you, but you get the sense that maybe the sun isn't quite so. Uh, yes, for crop, forgiving. Uh, quite so generous. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Miranda clearly, you know, sees, understands the, 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 the particular context and when this happened, right. And that somebody mm-hmm. had to win and that, and that she's, you know, that if, if Rodrigo's going to die, this is a way that he would want to die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that actually, yeah, Miranda and Jahan had, you know, watched the duel together. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That they, that they kind of supported, supported one another in that way. Right. Um, Yeah. um, So again, an important, and it's another example of, of um, the nature of friendships in this, in this novel, right. That they, they represent really, Kay represents friendships between women and between men, but also between men and women. Um, Yeah. That, that friendship is really, is kind of at the heart of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I really like. And then I really like actually that there is this kind of sense that they're, 
is some romantic tension between Jahan and Rodrigo, but that it ultimately doesn't go anywhere because it's very clear that he's in love with his wife. Yes. And, uh, but that, you know, that happens, but they, they all stay very good friends. Yes. Yeah. Despite what's, despite, despite what, what the death of Rodrigo, right. They, they maintain this, they maintain this relationship with Miranda. Right. And that there's not that despite that, despite the fact that you could, there could be an argument for various people having feelings of jealousy that none of them really seem to have. It's very, it's quite nice. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't invade and destroy those friendships, right? That yeah. that jealousy doesn't become the motivation behind further conflict between them. They're they're right. all it's I, I find particularly the characters, the older characters like um Jahan and Miranda and Rodrigo and Amar, this sort of judiciousness behind them, right? Like mm-hmm. they there's sort of this understanding that there's that that the world there's all these 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 things happen in the world right you have you might have particular feelings for someone in this particular in in a way but you understand that acting on them yeah stupid right yeah <laughs> right 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 and so 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 you can acknowledge that you have those feelings but but that a better way to to live your life is to be mm-hmm. is to simply be platonic friends with 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 this person instead and that these relationships are what's going to make you make your world okay. Yeah. Right. These friendships yeah. are going to be the way that you get through these difficulties. Um, mm-hmm. that's gonna, and the people that make stupid decisions that act on those things, those people are, are often, you see the paths that they take down them, right. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. That lead to their destruction in various ways. Right. Yeah. And that kind of, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Is that there is this kind of, this kind of mockery of these figures who, you know, maybe are letting their emotions carry them away too much uh, with, so, you know, that there, there are these, uh, you know, Christians who it turns out there's some commander, Nino, who has been having an affair with the queen. <laughs> there's this kind of excellent bit where we find out it's a, that it's Jahan is like in the mountains uh, imitating uh, the queen and Queen Furella and like, you know, very, in a very sexually explicit manner, uh, crying out for him. And that this is one of the things that, yeah, his kind of like anger and embarrassment over this whole situation is ultimately what makes it possible to defeat him. Yes, that, that, uh, that, that, yeah, Rodrigo is very aware of the fact that this is mm-hmm. a relationship. And so he plays that against these emotions against that man and, and who, you know, is, is very soundly defeated when he probably shouldn't have been. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's that at least, and there's a sense of, I think of, you know, some of these perhaps kind of ideas about honor and reputation as motivating factors, uh, maybe being something that for, for the people who are most sympathetic, the most sympathetic characters, not actually being what matters most. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I mean, those are, that, that those are present, but for them, there are other motivating factors behind that, that are are more important to them, right. That, that these, these relationships they have with other people, um, that's important. Yeah. So at this point, I think we can move into the Vera et Falso section, which uh, when I do more historic, kind of pure historical yeah. fiction is a kind of what did we get right or what did we get wrong? For something like this, I'm going to be kind of thinking of it more as a, what directly maps onto the medieval past, what gets adapted or altered, and what perhaps are some of the reasons behind this, especially because I think Kay is somebody who actually did research. Yes. As opposed to some things that I watch or read where I'm like, you, you maybe read the Wikipedia article on this. 
Uh, or they read some really terrible popular history book that was written yes. by someone who read the Wikipedia article. On it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. in this case, I think we could actually assume that when there are things that get altered, I think we can kind of assume that they are altered deliberately and that it represents some kind of choice about the narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That he's doing it out of pragmatic reasons rather than because he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And so especially kind of thinking of this, you know, as uh, this work that kind of exists in that space, right, of something that's not quite historical fiction, but that clearly is drawing on the real past. I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about what your experiences have been, because you have taught this book before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I... I've taught this book twice, actually, in two iterations of my medieval Spain um, survey course. I have used historical fiction in other courses that I've taught and more like more historical fiction. And it was really pro- it was really problematic. Partially it's because of the books I chose, but but also it just didn't work, right? But the reason why I thought this this book would be better is because it is historical fantasy, right? So yeah. it, one is well done. I think that's partially, right? I mean, there are lots of, lots of historical fantasy that isn't well done. But two, it allows the students to think about, okay, so here we have this book that you can kind of map into medieval Spanish history, right? There's lots of things mm-hmm. that are going, that you can see the connections between. It's very, yeah. very clear, those connections. But you can also see where... Kay has deliberately made choices to mm-hmm. not follow that history. And so for me, it helped them think a lot more about how, why he would have made those choices, right? What, mm-hmm. what, what are the, some of the motivations behind that? But also, what do we do when we have a book or a film or a television show that's set in the medieval period that is reflective of actual events and people that lived in the mm-hmm. medieval past. How do we approach that? And what are the questions that we need to ask? And this book is particularly, I think, useful for thinking about medieval Spanish history because it does highlight two of the key themes in medieval Spanish mm-hmm. history, convivencia and reconquista, right? There were conquest mm-hmm. and this idea of, of interfaith relationships. And so it works really, really well for getting students to think about how do these play out with actual human beings? Yeah. Right? Because they yeah. read about they read about this in the historical documents and, and they read about this in the secondary sources written by historians. But actually understanding how it played out, I think it can be hard, mm-hmm. right? How does this really yeah. work in practice, this, this yeah. type of thing? And so I think that the, that's one of the things I really like about this book is that mm-hmm. it gets the students to think about, okay, if there are human beings living in this moments where mm-hmm. we see these things happening, how does that play out in practice? Yeah. Right? What happens when these people have to make these choices and have to think about all these different influences on them mm-hmm. and the complicated nature of that? I think this book is so good at showing them that. And so that's that's partially yeah. why I, I chose it was because I wanted them to think about those things. And I've done a few different things with them with it. Um, one year when I taught the class, I actually had them for their final projects. They had to pick aspects of this 
book that relate to medieval Spanish history. Mm -hmm. And then their projects were based on that. Okay. So I had, you know, really great, I had some really interesting projects where they looked at Judaism and medicine and they looked at, mm-hmm. at actually a lot of students that year did projects related to women's history because women uh-huh. are so prominent in this book. Yeah. They were really interested in that, right? So they looked at queenship mm-hmm. and they looked at, at women's economic activities and they looked at concubinage and all these different things. Um, so that was, was yeah. really, really, really fun. Teaching historical fiction and historical fantasy can be very rewarding, both for students and for for you as a professor. But you have to be careful about what you choose. Yeah. And a fantasy, a historical fantasy novel works better, especially one mm-hmm. that's well written. Well, what that's well. Yeah. Done. Yeah. And I think uh, your point about the kind of thinking about this through the lens of the experiences of real human beings is one that's especially well taken, especially in terms of thinking about the real the real messiness, right? That, uh, and the fact that, you know, there are a lot of these figures who are kind of crossing interfaith boundaries in various ways. And of course, you know, one of the, you know, one interesting real life example of that in some ways is of course the figure of El Cid, who is mm-hmm. the uh, figure that Rodrigo de Belmonte is based on. Yes, fair. And, and, and I mean, no, El Cid's such a fascinating character historically because there's El Cid, the created El Cid in the poem yes. of El Cid. And then there's the Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar, right? That El Cid. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I like about this is that is that Rodrigo Belmonte has elements of both, right? Like there's yeah. lots of there's yeah. lots there's lots of the created fictional El Cid. And mm-hmm. then there's then there's parts of the sort of what we actually know about about him as a human being uh, uh, is in there yeah. too. But yeah, I mean K K uh, K is I mean, of all the figures in the in the book, he's the one that is most clearly connected to a historical figure. Yes, yeah, which uh, you know, in in very clear ways. And in a, but I will say one of the things that jumped out at me in terms of that is so that you know, one of the things, of course, that he is famous for is that in real life, but also this is something that shows up in uh, the poema de Miocid as well, is the fact that he you know does spend some amount of his life fighting for the Emir of Zaragoza as a mercenary, there's a sense that, you know, he doesn't want to fight against his own king, but he's fine with fighting against other Christians. Yes. Yeah. In the service of a Muslim king. And uh, so I appreciated the, that element. Uh, the one thing that I will say is that, of course, I think Kay, or at least I think Kay wanted to create a character that uh, I at least like more than I like El Cid personally. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yes. And one particular thing I will note is that, so I don't believe we know anything about Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar's uh, opinions about Jews. No. And the only reference to Jews that we have in the poem is this episode where essentially he decides it will be great and funny to cheat two Jewish moneylenders out of quite a bit of money. Yes. He plays this trick on trick on them in, in this, in this poem, which is really de- described very uncritically right like yeah like this is just a normal thing that you do that you 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 give these jewish moneylenders boxes of sand instead of uh <laughs> yeah and it seems even a sort of positive you know look how clever yeah. the sid is in yeah. the context of the poem of the poem yeah and so so that i mean and i think it's hard for us to know because the poem has its own <laughs> history in terms of how it's right, written yes. and why and all that stuff but 
you know, we, we don't really get any sense of how he thinks about these, these about, about the Jews in particular. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously he's working for, for Muslim leaders. Um, so clearly he must be okay with that, with that, with that kind of thing, right. being under, being under the, the power of, of a Muslim king. But yeah, we don't really learn about that. But the Rodrigo Belmonte in the, in the novel is very much a man of tolerance, right? Yes. Yeah. That he's really, and he's, he's so nice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he just always seems to know the right thing to say to everybody. Right. Like, yeah. like the- he just seems like such a lovely man, yes. which, you know, but like even reading El Cid, he's interesting. Yes. Such a lovely man is not the impression I come away with personally. No, no. When you read about El Cid, you read about someone who I'm not sure that he's someone that I would actually want to spend time with. Um, no. But Rodrigo Belmonte, I'd quite happily sit down and have a glass oh, yeah. of wine with and chat. He, you seems, know, he seems like someone that that would be uh, would be nice to talk to. Yeah. And it probably is also the case that I would think uh, Amari bin Kairan also seems uh, perhaps a bit more likable than his real life antecedent as well, who Mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, from what I could tell, seems to probably be a figure called uh, Muhammad ibn Amar, also a poet, shows up in Seville in 1053, ends up becoming a court poet, is very possibly uh, involved in a sexual relationship uh, with uh, the prince, who then becomes king. But he in contrast with this book, which really emphasizes the fact that he, even when he's being arguably quite mistreated, maintains some amount of loyalty. Mm-hmm. That in this, he basically kind of keeps leading the armies in a number of sort of ill-fated and probably ill-advised battles, eventually captures Murcia and declares himself an independent king with the support of Berenguer II of Barcelona. <laughs> Yes. Gets overthrown, eventually does get captured by Al-Muthamid, this prince that he had at some point, perhaps, in fact, you know, that they had perhaps had once been lovers, uh, who captures him, throws him into prison and eventually just beheads him. Yes. Yeah. A little different story from uh, from yes. our, um, from the Amar in the in the, in the novel. So, yeah, I think I think for and I, and I think to, I wonder, too, is that, you know, El Cid is so well known as a figure outside of history right I mean people most a lot of people at least if they have some interest in history if you say the name El Cid they'll know something about him whereas Muhammad Ibn Amar is you know really not not very well known yeah not very not a household (laughs) name and so for him I think Kay felt a bit more that he could Mm -hmm. be more could change his story more right yeah more flexible and nobody and nobody would really say anything because they wouldn't uh, right I'm sure that if they if he presented Belmonte as a very as in a very negative way, right? There might have mm-hmm. been a very different uh, different response. Right. And with El Cid too, I will say also, you know, just in terms of him being some extended household name, that is of course also in part of, and because of the Charlton Heston movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, there's also this, this, there's, there's a multiple layers to how El Cid has been represented. And so he's known not only obviously in Spain, but also in, in to North American audiences as well, because of, yeah. because of the Charlton Heston and also the very recent series on the legend of El Cid. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah. which I still, I still need to make myself watch at some point. Uh, it's yeah. I've, I haven't watched all of it yet. It, it's better than, than I thought it would be. Um, okay. Particularly because again, the female characters seem, seem much more interesting than, than in right. some cases. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I didn't find that to be especially well done in the Charlton Heston Elsid films. So. No, despite it being Sophia Loren, she couldn't save that. 
No, no. I mean, she does a great job with yeah. uh, what she is given, but yes. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. The central character who of course has, I would say less of an obvious real life antecedent is uh, Jahan. Yes. Who, according to, you know, the obviously uh, completely valid source of Wikipedia is inspired by, (laughs) at least is inspired by Rebecca of York, who is not only, who's not even a real person, but a fictional character from Ivanhoe and is in England. Yes. Yeah. So I I wonder, I mean, maybe that's the case, but I don't, it seems like a stretch. (laughs) Right. So there's, there doesn't seem to be, I would say, a completely obvious basis, but there are, of course, you know, real life Jewish women doctors that are referred to. Uh, There's actually an an ethical will from a, a rabbi in Cologne, Yehuda ben Asher, who's father actually had been based in the Iberian Peninsula for a long time, who refers to the fact that he was uh, treated for an eye issue by a Jewish woman doctor, and that it's actually Mm -hmm. only because of her that he wasn't completely blind. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. So that's fascinating. What a great source. In our own home turf of the crown of Aragon, there is also, you know, are a number of references to Jewish women who worked as physicians, including one woman, Floretta Sanoga, who in 1381 is described as having referred 15 florins for treating the queen for some ailment. Yeah, so there's some historical precedent in having this, uh, having this, the akindith doctor, right, a Jewish woman woman doctor, which Um, I, I think that most audiences would not expect. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which I really did appreciate that. And the fact that, yeah, there are these real life antecedents, even if there's not a single figure who we know enough about for her having been the basis Mm -hmm. for a character like Jahan. I appreciated that. And I will note, of course, one of the things that is, uh, you know, that's very nice in the book is that she is university trained. Yes. Which that is the big thing that, you know, would have been very different for Jewish women or for that matter, Jewish male physicians because neither Jews nor women were able in general to attend universities and train formally as physicians. No, I mean, there's some universities in Italy that allow women to listen to lectures, but they're not allowed to get the formal training that men get, which is why they're often dismissed as real, in quotation marks, medical practitioners, particularly as the Middle Ages continues. Um, Mm -hmm. But certainly their skills and their ability is sought by many different people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's clear that it is, you know, that they're trained. It's just, it's, it's a very practical training uh, that yes. it's essentially they're trained via apprenticeships. Yeah, yeah, by their, by, yeah. often by family members, but. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, and so that element too, of course, that she's yeah. following her father's footsteps seems, seems realistic to me as yes. well. Yeah, yeah, that the, she had this apprenticeship under him, who's a renowned, and the fact that she's such a yeah. good doctor, right, I think is yeah. reflective of that training. yeah. And so actually, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this question of uh, how Kay portrays women and, uh, you know, to what extent that kind of maps on to medieval realities versus to what extent it's, uh, you know, maybe in some ways uh, kind of a little more, a little more positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think in, in this world that he's constructed, on the one hand, there's this kind of ideological representation about, about women that is very similar to these kind of ideological representations mm-hmm. of women in the Middle Ages, right? That women are inferior, that they're inferior intellectually and physically and emotionally, that they shouldn't be trusted for these. Very, so that ideology yeah. is kind of present, this patriarchal ideology. But at the same time, he presents us with a world where there doesn't really seem to be limitations for women that seek mm-hmm. them, right? That, right. 
the, their limitations on their lives are not because of their gender, but because of their religion mm-hmm. or their socioeconomic status. Yeah. You had, had already brought up the example of the fact that, you know, Jahan's a, a doctor. She wouldn't have had access to, <laughs> to mm-hmm. going to university really in the medieval period. But one of the reasons why I like this novel is that he shows that there were lots of options for women mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. in his world and also in medieval Europe, right? Like, I think it really yeah. challenges this belief that in the Middle Ages, women didn't do anything, right? They stayed Mm -hmm. home, they had children, they were wives and mothers. And if they weren't wives and mothers, then they were the servants of their families who Mm -hmm. (laughs) had children. But Kay, you know, shows women in these really dynamic roles and doing lots of different things, right? Not just doctors, but they're queens and they're concubines and they're doctors and they're prostitutes and they're working in the market. And that, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they do all kinds of things in public, which is something that's often is, is a misrepresented belief of the medieval period that women are in the mm-hmm. domestic spaces in the, in the home. Right. And in so, terms of yeah. films set in the middle ages, I mean, I often talk about the, you know, the princess or prostitute phenomenon yes. that, yes. that that's really basically what you have in most yeah. movies set in the middle ages that the vast majority of women you see are, are one of those two things, right? They're yes. royalty or high nobility and, uh, have either power or not in that particular context or they're prostitutes. Of course, those women existed, but I appreciate that there are other examples of things that women can do and be that, as I said, do, you know, map onto some of the realities of what were, you know, not universal, certainly, but were options for women in the medieval past. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that this is really good. This, this book is, is really good at showing that, right. Showing people that, Mm -hmm. that women did have options. So obviously, there in the real medieval period, there were limitations on their options, right? Mm-hmm. Um, women didn't have a formal education in the way that men did or didn't have access to it in the way that men did. Women didn't necessarily always have these ability to act politically in the ways mm-hmm. that some of these women do. But Kay at least shows you that these things were possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, and that, that women could potentially do these things. Yeah. So one of the things that Kay does, which is very obviously a deliberate choice, which uh, does not entirely map onto the real historical past, is that he really speeds up the timeline that (laughs) the book covers what in terms of their real world analogs, that would be the Caliphate of Cordoba in the fall of the Caliphate of Cordoba in 1031 goes into, you know, we're at some point kind of getting into like the early Christian conquest of the Iberian peninsulas, we're including the Crusades in 1096 and the Crusade Rhineland massacres are implied in the Sorenica massacre. But then by the time the book ends, it's it's over, right? I mean, we've had the yeah. conquest of Granada, I guess. It's 1492. Yeah. Yeah, and all, we're all so, at the end. It's, it's all wrapped up yes. in like 30 or 40 years, essentially, I think. Right, because it's the very yeah. least we know it's all in the lifetime of Amar ibn Khairan, because he's the yeah. one who assassinates the last caliph and that he's still yeah. alive and relatively spry by the yes. end of the book uh, in this yeah. period, which in real life is, you know, 450 years. Yes. Yeah, I think I, my sense is that it's about he's fairly he's probably in his 20s when it first starts. And then uh, maybe early 20s when it first starts, there's a sense that he's quite young. Um, yeah. And then by the end, he's, you know, probably in his 60s, maybe that seems yeah. to be the, the because he's walking with a stick, right? So he's, right. he's uh, yeah, that, so all of this takes place. So this 450 year is kind of compressed into this very, uh, very short, uh, short timeline. 
Yeah, which I, I found really interesting. It I see why narratively it makes sense in that the the arc sort of has to end with the with the fall of Al Rasan. Yeah. And yeah. that we kind of have then this lament that he is uh, that he's giving at the end. He's and ready. That I can, yes. Yeah, and that I can see how it would be sort of unsatisfying where it'd be like, well, I mean, you know, they've conquered a bunch of cities, but things are kind of still going. There's still this one kingdom in the south. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it it's interesting because you know his his he has done other because his his discussion of um, Byzantium, for example, is done over three mm-hmm. novels actually, the yeah. Serentine Mosaic. And so he could have made that choice, right? Let's tell mm-hmm. this story over several generations. Right. Um, you know, maybe maybe the the first novel is this group of people, and then the next mm-hmm. novel can be kind of the children of which he's done before. So I think that that would that could have been a possibility. And and also mm-hmm. I think because that kind of the end end part of it seems really rushed. Right? It does. <laughs> it does yeah. The epilogue. Yeah. So I think I would have, I would have preferred that he maybe had take, cause then that would have been a great story, right? The story mm-hmm. of Alvar and Maria's children and of, of um, Rodrigo's son and uh, in, mm-hmm. in this, in this re- reconquest and, and you know, that, but I think that would have been a, would have been a great, would have been a great story too. I think he does it though, because, because people associate medieval Spanish history with that conquest of Granada right and so right if he's going to write a novel about a fictionalized medieval Spain he had to have that end as part of it mm-hmm. again yeah. unless he did a, a several book series mm-hmm. and I I do get the choice it's one that it would have been nice if he hadn't done that just because I think uh, you know as somebody who works on later medieval Liberia mm-hmm. right and I work on the 13th 14th centuries mostly I think one of the things that's really interesting is the fact that it's not this, you know, overnight or single lifetime transformation. Yes. It's this very long period where, you know, you see this, uh, this continued messiness. I mean, there's a ton of work still about there being, you know, mercenaries from the kingdom of Granada, of Granada, who's in the 14th, who we know in the 14th century are fighting for the, for the Christian crown of Aragon. And yeah. you know, so Hussein Fancy's book, for example, that, yes. uh, you know, that I think it is, it is interesting that there, that, you know, this is, a system that continues, right? That we don't just, and that, you know, Muslim peasants are continued to, you know, live and be, you know, relatively tolerated in these kingdoms that are becoming Christian. But when there are still Muslim kingdoms around, it's like, it's happening for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and he's, I mean, he's set up this novel in thinking about what's going on in Al-Rasan as this place of all of those complexities, right? Of interfaith mm-hmm. relationships. He's, he's really d- done a great job of constructing that world so I think it would have been really great to continue to explore those complexities Mm. to think about well what happens when the Jadites then become the ones that are pushing this conquest and are conquering Mm -hmm. these areas you know when you have these Asherite peasants when you have these cities where there are Kindith and Jadite and and Asherites living together but the Jadites are in control right like that I think it would have been I would have liked to see that what what that would have been like Mm -hmm. to see how it's different right that yeah again that that's something he does so well in this series that he does on Byzantium is he shows Mm -hmm. the shifting and changing about what happens over this over this longer period Mm -hmm. so I think that it would have um it would have benefited it the other thing that I, I that I find really problematic about it is you know there's this belief among certain people that 
that what happens in Spain, this conflict between Muslims and Christians is a conflict that is a single narrative, right? That, yeah. that you know, the Muslims conquer Spain in 711 and, and the Christians are pushed up to the north. And then there's this great figure of Palio, the legendary Palio who defends the Christians mm-hmm. and that from Palio till Isabel and, Fern- and um, Ferdinand in, in 1492, that this is like an unbroken attempt at reconquering yes. the Iberian Peninsula from and um, also the of course the term reconquering itself right is implying yes. that this all then goes back and kind of links directly to the Visigothic past yes yeah yeah so that there's this connection and 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 unfortunately that this book kind of perpetuates that belief yeah. right because of that speeded up timeline and the fact that we see the same people kind of in charge of this, mm-hmm. that that perpetuates that idea, right? That this is a, this is a, this is not a series of wars, but it is one war. Mm-hmm. And then of course, also that it's interesting because then it kind of sets up and that we, it's not entirely clear, I believe from the end, precisely what is happening with the Asherites and the Kindah yes. who are now in the fully Jadite ruled Iberian Peninsula. Of course, in you know historical reality, what happens is that relatively soon after the conquest of Granada, the Jews are expelled, mm-hmm. and relatively, and you know, and ten years after, the Muslims are expelled as well. We lose that, and in part, it's I think I think it makes sense in some ways that they don't mention it in this book because the sped up timeline would almost make that seem bizarre. Yes. Yeah, it would. Because, because why would that happen? Right. They're like, oh, so Mm -hmm. they're, and it's interesting because in his other novels, so the one that he just published recently on medieval, late medieval, it's like 15th century Italy, you hear Mm -hmm. about some things happening in Esperanza. So, uh-huh. so, so he does, that's one of the things the I like. it's the same world, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things I like about his books is that he always makes reference to the other things that yeah. are happening, right? And so he does kind of talk a little, and I can't remember the details of exactly what he says, but there, there he does mention things happening mm-hmm. in Espanya, right? That there's stuff going on there that are is brought up in the narrative of, because um, of course they're involved in these wars, these mm-hmm. Italian wars, right? Yeah. And it would be interesting. And he certainly could still, I think, write a sequel, which is, you know, what is happening in Esperania mm-hmm. after a couple of centuries of uh, Jadite rule. And, yeah. you know, I mean, then that things obviously I think would be different without there being still the kingdom of Granada, but that of yeah. course, you know, with the exception of this one kingdom, most of the Iberian Peninsula is under Christian control from the 13th century onwards. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would love to have a, to have a sequel to this, right, to see, to see yeah. where he would go with it. Yeah. So I think some of these conversations that we've had about these, uh, the kind of relationships of the three faiths uh, can lead into what I wanted to do for the Historia at Veritas segment, where I get into a real historical event or phenomenon. Here, I'd really like to take the opportunity because I haven't had it before, given just uh, what movies and books are out there to talk about the concept of convivencia. Sure. Yeah. So convivencia is a term that's been in, I mean, it started in the early 20th century. And it it essentially means this idea of Christians, Muslims, and Jews living together in medieval Spain. And the implication is that that they're living together more or less harmoniously. Right. I would say in terms of the, the way the term was used by many scholars and certainly the ways in which the term has then become imported into a more popular lexicon 
the assumption tends to be that, yeah, that convivencia means a kind of basically a kind of interfaith, almost utopian harmony. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That they, you know, they all, they all, that there's, here we have, unlike anywhere else in, in medieval Europe, in Spain, we have Muslims, Christians, and Jews that all live together in harmony, regardless of whether Muslims are in charge or Christians are in charge, right? That, that they all, they all kind of live together. The height of it, of course, is under Muslim control, but that they all kind of live together in this harmonious way with, with, with only minor conflict, Right, you know, that, that, right. that happens. But there's all these wonderful things that there, there's there's collaboration intellectually and culturally and you know economically. There's all these collaborations together, and that this is what makes Spain unique is the argument mm-hmm. that's made. Right, and of course, one of the things that I think has been really interesting in uh, some recent scholarship is scholarship kind of pointing out some of the ways in which to the extent that there is cooperation and intercultural connectivity between these three faiths, that that's not something that's unique to Spain or to the Iberian Peninsula, that this is something that we can really see in, certainly between Jews and Christians in Northern Europe, it's something that we can see in the Middle East at various points. There has definitely been this really interesting challenge to this idea of a kind of uniqueness of, uh, you know, to to use the term that I think was on like Franco's uh, uh, yeah. promotional tourism materials, you know, Spain is different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we need to bring a discussion of medieval Iberia's interfaith relationships into a broader discussion of interfaith relationships mm-hmm. across the medieval world, right? Not just in Northern Europe, but also around the Mediterranean and to, you know, compare what's happening in Spain to what's happening in Constantinople, what's happening in North Africa, what's mm-hmm. happening in Southern Italy, right? That there's these other, that there, these relationships are happening elsewhere too. And then of course, the other piece of this is that, you know, the, the idea in the earlier scholarship and in these popular works that have talked about this is again, this kind of essentially utopian atmosphere conflict is being something that's very minor and very occasional. So it's, you know, I think another really important scholarly trend is scholarship that's thinking about the presence of interfaith polemic, the presence of hostilities, uh, the fact that, and yes, massacres are anomalous, but they're also arguably anomalous as opposed to constant in most other places as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that 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 you know that there there is this conflict that's happening between the and mm-hmm. it various forms of conflict, right? That mm-hmm. that there's viol- there's there's um, systemic violence in different parts of Iberia. There's you know sort of financial. There's other forms of pressures that are placed upon these minority mm-hmm. groups to make life really uncomfortable for them. Right. You know, I mean, Girona that that we both study um, mm-hmm. deals with deals with this um, in the late 14th and early 15th century. It has it has the, the pogroms that happen across Spain in 1391 there as well. But then a period after that in the early 15th century, mm-hmm. from, around you know from about 1414 um, into the into the 1420s, the Jews there are really targeted by yeah. Christian authorities. Not in through violence, but through other means, right? Through economic mm-hmm. pressure and th- through pressure to convert and these other types of things mm-hmm. that create crises for these communities, right? So, right? so there are these other types of conflict that are not necessarily mm-hmm. violent. And of course, you know, real efforts to create and reinforce religious hierarchies and boundaries yes. in a variety of ways. One big way that a number of scholars have talked about are sexual boundaries, that it's very telling that Christian laws tend to emphasize uh, it being a problem for Christian women to have sex with Jewish or Muslim men much more than vice versa. 
Yes. Yeah. And that's yeah. because of, you know, yeah, these desires for the the religious hierarchy should be mapping onto the gender hierarchy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay for Christian men to have these relationships with a Muslim or, or Jewish women, provided these are not marital relationships. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. But you know, you know, a Christian man going to having a sexual relationship an informal sexual relationship with a woman of, of a minor faith is, mm-hmm. is, you know, they're like, well, you really shouldn't do that, but they're not, but they're not really going to do anything about it. Um, whereas if it right. was a Christian woman, that woman and her then partner would also get into big, big trouble. Yeah. Right. And in some places, you know, potentially as far as being executed. Yes. And then of course, things like I was actually just the other day reading some of the, uh, the Barcelona urban regulations talking about uh, requirements in the 14th century that Jews wear various kind of distinguishing items of clothing, right? They're supposed to be either a Jew, a kind of yellow or red cape, or that if you aren't wearing the cape, then you can have kind of circa attach a yellow circle to your exterior clothing. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that in many, in many urban regulations in, in yeah. cities across Spain in the, in the late medieval period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that there, there are these kind of real ways in which, uh, you know, there are moments in which difference is constantly being reinscribed, which boundaries mm-hmm. are being created and in which, you know, hierarchies are being emphasized that for Christians, mm-hmm. that, that Jews and Muslims are inferior, that for Muslims, Jews and Christians are inferior and Jews never have enough power to (laughs) be able to do anything about that, but they certainly have their own, you know, religious polemics that are targeting certainly Christians and some and occasionally Muslims as well. Yeah. Yeah. So to those markers of difference being emphasized as well. Yeah. Within a hierarchical way. I think that's really important too. Yeah. But I think one of the things that is interesting about the term conviventia itself is that it, of course, has this history, but that its literal meaning is just living together. And I think that to the extent that it can be salvaged, it would be to kind of think about it in its literal sense, right? That they they are living together. That doesn't mean they're always living together harmoniously, but they are living together for a very long time. Yeah. And I mean, and much like, much like, you know, a family lives together or you live together with roommates, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. you get along and sometimes you don't get along. Yeah. And so there's, there's these conflicts that arise, but there's also moments where there's these individual relationships show mm-hmm. that they are getting along and they are supporting each other in different ways. And mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, that's the important thing to think about in terms of how we explore interfaith relationships in, in medieval Spanish history is, is that we need to think about those individual relationships alongside mm-hmm. these broader yes. systemic institutional relationships at the same time that mm-hmm. both can exist in the space at yeah. the same time. Yeah. And that is, I think, one of the things that's really interesting about this book is that yes. it has such an emphasis on these individual relationships. Yes. Yeah. While also showing these broader systemic intolerance that's happening too, right? At the same time, yeah. that, that both of these exist together. Yeah. And if I can do a something of an anti-plug in this section in terms of talking about, you know, maybe how not to complicate or challenge the idea of conviventia, I think it is worth mentioning that there is a relatively recent book by Dario Fernandez Morera, who is not actually a specialist in the medieval Iberian Peninsula no. or the interfaith relations thereof. He is, I believe, a scholar of golden age Spanish poetry. Yeah, Cervantes in particular. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, published this book, The Myth of the Andalusian Paradise, which I actually discovered because a bunch of my students cited it and uh, they said things in their papers. And I said, 
where did you get this from? Yeah. And followed their footnotes. And that's where they got that from. And then I read many reviews of this book. And then I gave a lecture about how maybe you should look at the publisher. And if they are coming out from a press that explicitly says that their goal is to promote conservative values on American campuses, maybe that's not the book to use. Yeah. In my medieval Spain class, I actually, in the first, uh, the very first lecture, what we do is I talk about uh, Ornament of the World mm-hmm. by Maria Menocal, which really highlights yeah. this sort of this harmonious convivencia, right? Mm-hmm. This idyllic period. And I talk about that and then I compare it to Myth of the Andalusian Paradise, mm-hmm. which is completely the opposite. And what I yeah. do is I use them together to get my students to think about when you have these works that present only one picture. Yeah that's when you should be questioning the picture that they're presenting that history is complicated and if they're if this is a book that's not presenting a complicated story then Mm -hmm. there's something wrong with it particularly when dealing with interfaith relationships right Uh, but yeah look at look at the publisher look at the Mm -hmm. um the reviews of his of the book are really fascinating to read because um Mm -hmm. because you know popularly this book has got I mean obviously white supremacists have picked it up oh yes and they because it very much has an axe to grind against Muslims in particular that that's very much the point is in particular the claim that there was any kind of interfaith harmony under Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula is categorically wrong is his argument yes yes is completely erroneous and so it, it this I mean it's a the book is a good example of what can happen when an academic who writes about a period he really knows nothing about but who writes mm-hmm. from a very specific political agenda where that can be and and this book is available in university libraries all yeah I mean my library has it Mm-hmm. And so I actually, when I teach medieval Spain now, I have on the syllabus, do not use this book. I specifically yeah. state it because so many of my students did the same, right? They saw it. Yeah. It's in the library. They assume that it's an okay book to use and right. uh, it's not, right? Yeah. It's actually at some point at least was listed. If you go to the Wikipedia page for either Muslim Spain or Al Andalus, whatever is the title of the Wikipedia yeah. page, it's listed as one of the main reference oh works that you should oh. consult, which yeah, I, every now and then I'm like, I should edit it and take it out. But I'm like, somebody is just going to put it back in. Put it back in again. Yeah. And this <laughs> is the thing, right? This particular, and, and I think it's important. I think your point that they look at the, who's publishing it is because when mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember how I found out about it. Someone must have, I bet a student referred to it. And in, 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 so I went and looked at it the same. Right? Yeah. And, I, and then I looked at the publisher and I went, wait a minute, what's <laughs> going on here? But again, it's, it's, I think that that's the problem, right? These, these extremes, right? The mm-hmm. extreme convivencia is this idyllic utopia that's different from everywhere else is really problematic in a different way, I think, to this type of, this type of representation that's, that's happening. Yeah. But it's a problem that these books are being are being um, represented as as actually reflecting mm-hmm. medieval Spain, and this is why I think novels like um, *The Lines of El Rosan* are so good because they mm-hmm. show those complexities, right? They show yeah. students that it is complicated, but you can understand a story mm-hmm. even if it's complicated. And I think that's also kind of a good, uh, a good, you know, it can function as a good yeah. lead in too, in terms of uh, encouraging students to find, uh, you know, the actually, you know, a great deal of excellent scholarship that is being produced on this topic. And because that's one of the other problems with uh, Fernandez Morada's book is that he creates something of a straw man 
in that he implies that, you know, Menokal and a couple other very kind of popularly focused history books, including many of which are not by, you know, professional academics, that he presents that as if that's the state of the field, which at the time when the book was written in, what, 2015, 2016, was very much not the case. Yes. Yeah. His, I mean, in many ways, his book is very dated, right? Because yeah. it, it, the historiography, so the, the work by professional historians that he discusses is work that's old. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Nicole's book came out in 2001. Right. And, and you know, even that book is interesting in that, you know, Menachal is a, a scholar of this period, but Ornament of the World is a book that is somewhat more popularly geared or that that's geared somewhat more toward a popular audience. Yeah. Yeah. And she, again, she wanted to present a particular representation mm-hmm. of this, of this period. And there's been so much amazing work done on interfaith relationships in medieval Spain, you know, between that time, between 2001 and and when uh, Moreno's book was published, that there's so, there there was, there's a huge body of work he could have drawn from. Yeah. Um, But again, he doesn't want to tell that story, right? To him, this Mm -hmm. is a story of Muslims as evil, as violent, as Mm -hmm. intolerant. And so that's the story that I'm going to tell. And I'm just going to ignore all this other. But he also goes on these long diatribes about those historians who tell that story, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which which when you get to that, that should kind of say to you, wait a minute. (laughs) Right, right. So yeah, so I guess that's kind of an anti-plug for that. But I think in some ways, again, another plug for the Lions of Al-Rasan, and that, you know, despite the fact that it is obviously a work of fiction and of fantasy, I think it it's not perfect, but I think it does a more responsible job of depicting convivencia and of depicting interfaith relations in the Iberian Peninsula than some other books that one could read. Yeah, very much so. And 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 again, because it because it deals with these human relationships, I think it helps people see them in a very different way. Yeah. Uh, and absolutely. understand how they worked, right? Understand, think about right. the person on the street. Like I always, I, I'm sure you feel the same way when you're, when I'm in Spain, particularly when I'm in Girona with this preserved medieval city, mm-hmm. I think about the fact that, you know, the women that I'm reading about in the archives were walking on these streets and yeah. you know, what would have been, a, what it would have been like for them to walk along these streets where they are meeting Christians and Jews and other Jews here, mm-hmm. right? They're, like, what would that have been like? And I think that the lines of how Rosan helps you kind of picture that a bit more. Yeah, to think about, you know, the the fact also that people can be complicated, right? That there are these mm-hmm. people who, on the one hand, you know, have this, have these loyalties in some ways to these kind of ideas about faith and conquest, but that that doesn't, that doesn't take away necessarily from the fact that they also have these interpersonal connections that are meaningful mm-hmm. with people who yeah. are belong to other faiths. Yeah, and I think it's more reflective of the historical sources that we read. Yeah, absolutely. The Fabula Nostra section, which I'd like to get into next, is where typically I have us imagine a film or show in some way inspired by this one. Or sometimes for books, I just suggest that we can kind of, you know, talk about casting, which I'll be honest, I actually tried to do and I really struggled uh, finding (laughs) actors who I felt like fit our three central characters. Yes, me too. Yeah, I I did as well. That would have been true to them in the way that they're they're created. Right. Yes. So I'm I'm all for I'm all for making this movie, but uh, hope I don't know. Hopefully, we'll find some excellent unknown actors out there if we do. 
Yeah, well, you know, they, they have, um, there has been rumors since 2005 that this is going to be made into a movie. So Warner Brothers mm. actually bought the rights to this oh. to this book to create a movie in 2005. And apparently it's, I mean, I, 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 I thought, I haven't heard anything about it lately. So I went and looked and apparently it's still very slowly moving, but it is moving. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. who knows, we may see a, a movie of this at some point in time. Uh, maybe they're having the same problems with casting that we are. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, so I I hope they are successful. I think it could be really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so too. So yes. So I did come up with my with a just kind of like kernel at least of an idea of something totally different, yeah. but in some ways inspired by this. I think if I were going to do the kind of fantastical representation of some sort of real historical event. I would love to do something inspired by the Berenguer Ramon II's alleged murder of his twin brother, Ramon Berenguer II, in the, the county of Barcelona. Yes, I, I, I told my students that uh, that story when I was teaching medieval Spain. Yeah. First of all, they love the fact that the brothers just have flipped names, you know. Yes, they, uh, that, hilarious. <laughs> that, that, is, that it's that. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that would be a really, uh, really dramatic kind of wonderful, wonderful story to tell. I was trying to think about about what I would would uh, would want to tell. I think that because there hasn't really been a well done representation of this, I think looking at something like the city of Valencia during the time mm-hmm. of um, no, there's a uh, in in the time of the, the plague. So yeah. You know, Valencia is this as because in the process of becoming the leading city in the crown of Aragon at mm-hmm. the time, and there's a war that's going on between Pere, the king Pere and uh, these Valencian nobles, and he's having other wars as well. And then, and then the plague happens, and that, yeah. that whole. Uh, that whole uh, the 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 war stops, and then eventually he wins, and he says he's going to raise the city to the ground, right, and so it with salt. Um, but I think there's so much dr- drama in that particular yeah. in those moments as well. I think would be the other thing too is is I think I'd be fascinated to see a, a story, a movie done on the life of Lenore Lopez de Cordoba, hmm. who uh, whose memoir is really a story of you know, a noble woman whose family is caught up in the mm-hmm. civil war, um, who experiences the plague, who wants to become a nun. And like, there's all these things yeah. that happen in her life. So I, I think that her story would also be a really dramatic, really dramatic film too. Yeah, definitely. I also, you know, it's inspired by, uh, this will be a, a, an episode coming out soon after yeah. this one uh, that uh, I have been at the time of recording at Washington Cathedral of the Sea, which I have complicated feelings about, which I will talk yes. about elsewhere. But I do think that, you know, the, just thinking about the film that like, you know, this is a real position, but you know, the the consul of the sea as a leading yes. figure of Barcelona, I feel like that term is just meant for a fantasy novel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, and that's the one thing about the lines of El Rasan is it really doesn't deal with the crown of Aragon very much at all. Right. Most of no. the players in this, most of the players in this novel are, are essentially Castilian or from Navarre. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, I, th- I think the kingdoms are, are Navarre, Leon and, and Galicia is the, the three in this novel. Um, and the yeah. crown of Aragon doesn't really play a role at all. And so I'd right. love to see and I wonder too if it's a little complicated. So maybe, <laughs> but, but and also not quite going anywhere at this point. But but you know, and 
I'd love to see a novel set there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In, in that historical thing, because there's so much cool stuff that happens. Um, yeah. In how the crown of Aragon is created and, mm-hmm. and in, in, you know, Jama's, Jama's conquest of these areas. And I think, I think that'd be a great, another great uh, fantasy. And also, you know, the royal women in, in the crown of Aragon play all yeah. these really cool. There are cool... so many interesting figures. Yeah. So that I think would be great too. Yeah, of course, we're both biased since we are both, of course, historians of the Crown yes, of Aragon. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only slightly. Right. Everybody should do more movies and film, movies and books based on our research. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this way we can move into rating the book on a scale from one to five based on whatever idiosyncratic criteria we see fit. And I think I'm going to go with like a 4.25 out of five. Yeah, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm in that four. I, I was, I was like a, a 4.2 to a 4.5, I would say around that. Cause I think there's something, you know, there's some stereotypes that happen in this book and there's mm-hmm. some stuff that's a little, that bothers me. But overall, I think if you want someone to read a historical fantasy book yeah. set in a medieval period, it's a good book to read. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have spent a lot of time covering a lot of things for this podcast yes. that yes. are far less historically responsible while claiming more overt historicity than yes. this book. So. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, and, and I think Kay is a model of how, if you're a novelist and you're going to write about the historical past, this is how you do it. Right? Yeah. You do the research, you do the work. But also you set it in an alternate world that allows you to take those liberties, mm-hmm. but yeah. you're responsible with those liberties too. I yeah, think. you're thoughtful about it. They seem mm-hmm. deliberate. And I will also say that this uh, does pretty well on gender related considerations yes. as we've talked about. I, uh, yeah. I have a test for this podcast, the If Decker test, where there has to be at least one named woman who doesn't die, which this book passes <laughs> with flying colors. Yes. <laughs> and I believe even passes the Bechdel test in there is a conversation uh, that Jahan has with the prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. That's not about. Yeah. 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 Very much so. And they, yeah. and I don't remember their names, but they are names. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They're all names. That's the other thing too, right? Is that, that even these characters that are minor, they all have names, female characters. Yeah. All, they all, they're yeah. all, they're all named. So I think if you're going to talk about gender, this is a good, you know, a good book to think about the many, the possibilities yeah. of for women in the medieval period. Yeah, absolutely. We can wrap up at this point. So Dana, are yeah. there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they would like to do so? Sure. I'm on Twitter at, um, at Dr. Dane history. That's the best way to, to find me there. And I'm not, I'm in the process of creating a, a website for my, my own work, but I haven't quite got that done yet. So, so the Twitter's not, the way to go. Yeah. Twitter's the way to go. And then once I have, uh, once I know the, I'll share that on Twitter. And of course, many excellent published articles that people should absolutely seek out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. If you look under my name and uh, Alexandra Garrison, you can learn all kinds of things about uh, Jewish women and converses in the late 14th and early 15th century in Catalonia. And they're good things to read alongside your work. Yeah. I mean, if I can do a double <laughs> plug, uh, there yeah. is a, uh, a volume that you and Alexandra and Michelle Armstrong Partita edited, Women and Community in Medieval and Early Modern Iberia, which you and Alexandra have an article in, and I also yeah. have an article in. So yeah. everybody should go get that book. 
Yes, and it's the co-winner of the Collaborative Publication Award from the Society for the Study of Early Modern Women and Gender uh, for 2020. Yes, so yeah, everybody should read that. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. And finally, if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you, Dana, again for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be able to talk about this book. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.